few words on uh, taking the practice back home. Uh, I left a, so a few hints, uh, right, uh, copies of it uh, right under the bulletin board. If you haven't seen it, uh, it's there probably. I think there's some left. And then if you, if you like, take it before you leave. There's a lot that can be said about bringing practice into daily life. And also, in a sense, not very much. I mean, it's live your life, uh, watch, bring mindfulness into every activity, see how you actually live, not how you think you live. We have often a rather erroneous notions, self-images that are literally incorrect. They're not accurate. And then when you pay attention, uh, that can be a painful phase in practice as you come head-on, there's a head-on collision with an illusion. And uh, it smashes to the ground, and then you have a choice as to whether to try to glue it together again and uh, do some damage control or realize uh, nothing, uh, good riddance. Uh, uh, why live in terms of images of ourself and notions uh, so the practice in that sense, um, <clears throat> just pay attention and do each thing fully, whatever it is you're doing. When you're walking, walk. When you're sitting, sit. Just don't wobble. It's, it's an old teaching. Um, time to cook, just cook. Time to hug your child, hug, etc. And move through the day, and you'll see that in itself is very, very helpful, and it's also not so easy to do because we get caught up. Um, I want to make sure I, it, this is on that little list but to make sure because there are a fair number of very new people on this retreat and there's always a question of how long should I sit when I get home um, I would say I don't know uh, I know that it's, uh, you could he- you'll hear uh, one hour in the morning, one hour in the evening, 20 minutes in the morning, 20 minutes in the evening, 40 minutes, etc. I don't know where those numbers come from, but uh, I think they're safe because they help people uh, just want a definite, just tell me what to do and I'll do it. As you may have gathered, we're working here, it's a blend of some of rules and schedules and also encouraging you to uh, get in touch with your own inner wisdom and to uh, guide your own life. I feel that's not original or unique or even particularly creative. Uh, the Buddha says it over and over again. Be a lamp unto yourself. Um, for some people, being regular, I think, is very, very important. Uh, in a sense, more valuable than uh, sitting for a lengthy pe- uh, period of time and then uh, skipping it for days and then, in other words, really episodic, um, random. And uh, what the steadiness is very, very helpful. It's sort of like a, a current of mindfulness. Uh, more and more starts to grow, and it's especially useful to begin the day that way, wash up. And sometimes I know we're all very, very busy, and realistically, maybe we have five minutes. Sit quietly with yourself for five minutes. It's not a luxury, especially in the way the world is. Sit quietly, and uh, you know what to do. Uh, So I would suggest that, for those of you who are new, those of you who have been practicing for a while, I think you already have a sense of this, um, start off with what you find is your capacity. During this retreat, you had to behave according to our schedule. When you get home, it's a little bit different. When you might find that 20 minutes is just wonderful, and then it becomes torture. Uh, then make it 25. Challenge yourself a little bit. So create an edge. That's how you learn and grow. But if you overdo it, it'll become oppressive and before long uh, medicinal, and you won't want to do it. So, uh, and it'll grow naturally if you do it that way. Uh, just as, as you grow, the practice will naturally um, develop. Um, I'd like to get to what I think is, in many respects, more important than any methods, techniques. It's not 
one versus the other, but let, let's just say extraordinarily important. His attitude. Um, sometimes at CIMC, and one of the is where uh, the three of us uh, teach, Cambridge Insight Meditation Center. Uh, you get to know people. That's one of the, for me, lovely things about teaching there is that um, you get to know this continuity. You get to know people over years. We live right around the corner. Uh, we see people uh, often sometimes, those who really are drawn to this approach. And so we do get to know them. We get to know their practice, get to know them as people. And now and then I get the question, how is my practice doing? The yogi is asking me that. And now and then I'll answer, I don't know, how's your life doing? How's your... Now what they wanted was something about concentration, you know, the, the sitting practice. Possibly walking, but not even walking. How's that going? Because uh, we tend to, no matter how often we hear that practice is about mindfulness throughout every posture throughout a day, uh, there's no question that the star of the show is sitting. You don't see him vacuuming. I haven't seen a Buddha making, oh no, in Tantra, they make love in Tantra. But I don't think they're Buddhas, there's some other, I don't know what it is. Okay. Uh, and so, like it or not, even if, uh, if conceptually it makes sense to have a practice that uh, applies to our whole life so that we can be whole people rather than stick figures or specialists, fragmented. Uh, the only time we, we, what we call practice is when we sit down in a special room with a special attitude, uh, special clothes, special ma- all kinds of things. Um, rather limited, especially since we're lay people, because we have to look, we have a life, and most of the time we're not on the cushion. As devoted as you may be, as much as you may love this practice. And so, uh, if your attitude, uh, your conviction, your heart is really in the sitting, walking, intensive retreats, uh, and when you say practice, or my practice isn't doing so well, and you just mean that, so part of it, what we do at CIMC, is try to, at first, it's just uh, changing language. Practice isn't just sitting and walking. As beautiful and as precious that is, it's also not just IMS or some other place like this. As precious as that is, if you come to love this practice, it is. It's great to be here. Prior to IMS, prior to the Buddha, prior to Vipassana, Zen, Tibetan Buddha, Tantric, uh, Dzogchen is life. Life came first. I don't know if you noticed that. And then lots of forms have been invented by suffering human beings in all the great religions to attempt to learn how to live. It seems most basic question is uh, why are we here uh, to live? I, I, it's the most obvious answer would be obviously to live. Uh, I'm here just to... I don't know what that just is, but at least that's a good starting point. And so the question is, how are we living? Do we know how to live? And putting, in, putting the Buddhist teaching in a different, slightly different language, uh, I'll speak for myself. If it applies to you, good. If not, okay. Um, I was drawn to this because I concluded that I didn't know how to live. I had all kinds of external world successes and accomplishments, and I had a beautiful resume, and uh, there was this gap as big as Grand Canyon between my resume and my inner experience of how I was going through each day. Uh, So, okay, I think you probably all understand that in your own way. Suffering can come in from the top as well as the bottom. Great success can lead to great disillusionment. No success can lead to despair and self-disparagement. But finally, one way or another, uh, if you pay attention, at least you might conclude, you know, there are a few things I do need to learn about how to live, even though I'm an adult, even though I have lots of degrees and education, I've written this and published that and have any number of children and so forth, gray hair, 
there's something to be learned. We, we need to learn how to live. And I would say that this teaching um, is helping us. The curriculum is all set by life. If you pay attention, life is teaching all the time, 24 hours a day. No one's signing up. That's the problem. <laughs> but the curriculum's there. The Dharma, Dharma, one meaning of Dharma is natural truth. It's the, an attempt to, at least of one person, obviously an extraordinary one, to try to understand, well, what is the, there's an intelligence at work in this, in this life, in the universe. It's not just hodgepodge, random. Um, try to, to see that. And Dharma has to, to do with beginning to see the, the lawfulness, the, the fact that uh, this causes that. Uh, that actually life is intelligible if we pay attention, and particularly the lawfulness of our own mind, our own heart. If we pay attention, we can begin to decode uh, that magnificent brain and beyond. And so the practice is to help us do it. The lessons are coming from life, mostly through suffering, very often, not always. Um, And if you have a respect for that, then the practice becomes more than sitting and walking. Then uh, mundane activities like uh, washing the dishes, things you hate to do because you want to get them over with quickly to get on to the real stuff, uh, that can slowly start to fall away where you realize even taking out the garbage, it's not that that's such a magnificent holy event, but it's, it, that's a piece of your life in that moment. Whatever you encounter, from the moment you wake up until you go to sleep, that's your life, whatever that is. And so it's a view of practice where practice is not divorced from dharma. Dharma, there's no aspect of life that is excluded. And if you start to develop that attitude, uh, the very places perhaps that we um, have been hurt, like relationship, central, Probably everyone in this room has been wounded in one way or another in relationship. I'm saying probably just to sound reasonable. <laughs> we have. And we crawl into this uh, tent uh, to get out of the line of fire, at least temporarily, and that's wise. But unless you're going to become a, a contemplative monk or a nun, we go back out. We go back into the very world that perhaps we want to get away from. And if you view practice in a very narrow way, you can get very, very good, particularly at the sitting. Really good. For some of you who are new, that may sound far away. Uh, It's for ordinary people like ourselves. If you do it, it's going to improve. It's like anything else. You've done things already. If you don't do it, it won't. You can get very, very good. And the gooder you get, the bigger the divide between how you feel on the cushion and then that largely unexamined life with your wife, husband, partner, children, boss, student, all the rest of it, everything. And then it becomes a divorce, a kind of non-hospitalizable schizophrenia where... uh, And then we call it sacred and profane. That's all right for beginners, but that can be dangerous. Uh, even calling it samsara and nirvana, that's useful to begin with. But there's another view that it's all here. This is it. I mean, this life, there's only daily life. Do you think a retreat is not a slice of life, a slice of daily life? You've just done seven days. Isn't it life? It's just life in a different form. And so while here, you give your best to maintaining silence, to sitting, to walking, uh, because certain things can be accomplished by, that come out of the, in this uh, magnificent form that's been handed over to us by our ancestors, Dharma ancestors. There have been thousands of people who've benefited already for thousands of years. So uh, that part is wonderful. That's good. And now it's to take some of that and can we understand that this, come back, do more retreats, get a regular sitting practice, do some studying. But uh, personally, 
I don't see here as superior to my life in Cambridge. I also don't see it as inferior. To me, there's life. That's the challenge. And everything that I do is a place of practice. Where's the right place to practice, the best place to practice? Wherever you are. That's the perfect place to practice, but with this attitude. Now, if you can begin, some of you who are new, some of you have been around, maybe it's hopeless, too late. You know, you got that split. Can't, you know, um, here's how it expresses itself. Check yourself out. You become a retreat bunny, and uh, you start coming to lots of these retreats and accumulate all your battle, uh, you know, uh, medals, you know, Three-month retreat of 72, three-month retreat of 74. Uh, went to Korea for, you know, and a whole bunch of, you know, a decorated veteran. Uh, and when you leave any of these retreats, uh, you don't have that same zest because there isn't a certain conviction, a certain faith, actually, that our, our life, messy as it may be, which life can be, provides us with the perfect materials to awaken. There's nothing missing, nothing left out. Yes, that messy life of yours. In relationship, how do I get out? Out of relationship, lonely, how do I get in? Uh, it, you know, it's, it's, we all have it. There's no way to escape from it. Wherever you go, there's life again. That's what I mean. The teaching is right there. Okay, so how do we begin to learn? And if you have that perspective then uh, when you're uh, with your children, you give your best to your children, and it's not separate from dharma. That's what we were trying to convey with the yoga practice. True, it's physical activity. It's good for your health. You will have a slimmer butt. Your thighs will be nicer, etc. You'll have more energy. You'll live longer. I don't know. There are a lot of good things that come out of yoga. Can, at the same time that we do that, Uh, we not leave the wisdom component out so that we understand that this is, life includes physical movement. And can we bring the same mind that we have here into a particular posture, into cooking, into the most mundane activity? And some of that includes the suffering, of course. If the respect isn't there, you can't learn something if you don't respect it. If, if you don't respect the teacher, you probably can't learn from them. You may get a few technical hints and stuff, and that might be helpful if you want to be a gas station attendant. You know, I'm not to demean that. It's just that the technical things. But if you don't respect a teacher, I don't mean just this, any, and the subject matter, it's hard to learn, isn't it? Haven't you had that experience? Maybe you, the subject's great, but you can't stand the teacher. It's hard to learn, or the other way around, or both. You just can't wait till the course is over. And if life includes, if that's a part of the course, uh, begin to see perhaps how you really don't have respect in certain ways, how uh, you don't care about the quality of your consciousness that much, and that how uh, you're looking to get to special places and to accomplish special kinds of consciousness, and then that then you'll be okay. In the meantime, here we are, again and again. The perfect place to practice Wherever you are. We're at IMS, so let's do it this way. A little while you'll be dry in a little while you'll be driving or someone will be you'll be leaving here. And you'll see, probably, I hope not, but probably, your hard earned concentration will start to fall away. And you just realize, well, what did I spend? A week in misery. My mind got calm and concentrated. And now as the mileage ticks off, your concentration gets less and less. That may be true, but did you, if you have a wisdom perspective, you see your suffering, that you are holding on to what you attained, in quotes, here. And then you go into a different set of conditions, and you want that to be there forever. But that isn't how life is. Life changes. Life is impermanent, and it's impermanent in an uncertain way. So these are optimum conditions for helping the mind get a certain way. Invaluable, and you'll see that a lot of it spills over into daily life. And when you get out of here, you'll see some of it is as if it feels like I've never been on retreat. There I go, screaming at my kid again. Um, so the wisdom is much deeper than any tech- 
technique or particular mind state that you feel you've accomplished here or whatever it is you want to talk about. Um, let's uh, just a few um, concrete areas and some hints. And then really I think what would be better would be questions from you. Relationship, big one. Okay. Relationship can be seen as a place where practice doesn't happen. That's a place where you uh, get lost. Uh, you go to couples therapy or some kind of uh, counseling uh, to improve your relationship. And I'm all for that. I've seen a dramatic improvement. Uh, Dharma actually can improve your relationship with another. But I don't want to uh, uh, feature that. What I want to feature is the learning that comes out of relationship. Relationship is a mirror. And what it shows you, it reveals the ways of the self. Uh, In many ways, it reveals the ways of the self more than, let's say, if you go on a really long retreat, get very quiet, optimum conditions, and you'll feel that you're enlightened or you're a saint or just, you know, on the edge of sainthood. And uh, you love people. Your heart is just very, very moist with love. Can't wait to meet all the people in your life. And then you go out. This is happening. I'm speaking from first hand, first hand experience. Um, you feel like you've just done an immense house cleaning and just feel wonderful. And then all it takes is a few days in Harvard Square and you see that other things get accomplished when you're amidst people that aren't brought up when you're in silence, although we're amidst people too. And probably you have had reactions. A few Vipassana romances, they usually don't work. It's all in your head, you know, like. Uh, But okay, try it. Start talking to each other. You'll see, oh. (laughs) He's not a knight in shining armor. He's a jerk. Another jerk. So relationship, if you change your attitude, rather than it being something you have to avoid because it's so difficult and charged, and it is, uh, the human race has not, we don't know how to live together. Um, I don't mean just uh, family, etc. What I mean is as a, as a race, the human race, we literally don't know how to live together. We've learned all kinds of other things. We have not learned that. In fact, it looks like we've made uh, grade F. Are we any better than it was thousands of years ago? We're better at killing each other. More, san- uh, more sanitized, more scientific, I'm not blaming any one president or any one country. We're all in this together. And so start with yourself, your own small world. Uh, Start with you, that world. And when you're in the presence of another, it evokes something in you. And you can, with practice, become um, quite natural. It's not stilted, although at first you might feel self-conscious. It may seem a bit stilted. Probably it is where you're attending to the other person, but also you don't lose touch with your reactivity. Michael was getting at that in one of the talks. As you more and more become mindful of reactions, remember, reactions are, you can't help it, they're mechanical, they just happen. Uh, they start losing their power. The, the, the reactions lose their power. And then that, that makes room for what we can call a response, which is different. It's not mechanical, mechanical coming out of yesterday you know, your, all your conditioning from the past. And the mind is relatively calm. With practice, it gets more calm, clearer. And from that place, there's the, much more of a possibility of behaving in a way that is skillful, if you remember how that was used in a few of the talks. Beneficial for you and for others. Uh, more creative, kinder, wiser. Uh, if you see that you've made a mistake, you're more able to apologize or learn from it very important to unlearn our mistakes. Learning has a lot to do with seeing that we've made mistakes. That's how you learn. If you can't admit your mistakes, you're in big trouble. You're very limited. Here the mistakes are mistakes in living, not in adding up a column of figures. But this learning goes on for the rest of your life. Don't, there's no graduation here. Or death, if you want to put it that way. And some would say it keeps going on even after that. I just don't know firsthand. If so, sign me up. Okay. Um, 
So understand that relationship, and that applies to work. Life is a relationship. It's a movement, energy. And, okay, now, we've been learning the four foundations of mindfulness. What possible relevance, and this, I think, is all I want to say, and then let's see what's on your mind. Uh, there's the four foundations of mindfulness, all this breathing, and, and then this uh, free attention where we sit and just with whatever turns up. That seems kind of passive and fatalistic. Uh, yeah, all that drilling was going on in Michael's example. And, okay, world, we can learn how to not resent that and feel perfectly peaceful and grow inside. And in the meantime, we're being abused. We become just a very uh, smiley dust uh, doormat because we work out all the abuse, you know, the reactions to abuse. Uh, it isn't that. Okay, but let's move through it. What you've been doing is, uh, first of all, using the breath to help calm and steady the mind so that it's more able to pay attention during the week. We're trying to help the mind to be fit, to do all these uh, instructions that you read in books and suggestions here. Uh, the, the, the normal mind that we start with is wild and often can't do what it reads about. It can think about it and analyze it, but it, it, it doesn't have that clarity, that steadiness. So we're developing that on the breath, on walking meditation and the calmness. you lose some of it. But if you keep the practice alive, it's growing day by day on the cushion and off the cushion. Let's get to the part that tends to confuse people the most, not only here, but everywhere I teach it. When you just sit and allow it, you know, everything that comes up, it's just what it is. Uh, let it come, let it go, see the impermanent nature of it. Um, you know, the, the second set of instructions... Now, you can use the breath to help you do that. As you know, I'm just repeating the instructions during the week. By the way, you can also turn to the breathing throughout the day, not necessarily on the cushion. If you're getting lost in your own mind's projections, just the breath is always there. An inhalation and exhalation sometimes is all you need. And suddenly your mind becomes simple and you're awake in the present moment again. So keep the breath in mind. You don't have to slavishly be devoted to catching, set an Olympic record for following each breath. It's not that. But turn to it when you need it. Or the other suggestion, the body. That's a very good one. Of course, the two are really the same. The breath is part of the body, where you ground yourself in the body and whatever you're doing, that helps you stay awake. Okay. In the instructions, the art that we're learning is how to be with whatever turns up. I hope this is a little bit familiar to you especially the new people. Well, what does that have to do with daily life? You're getting experience being with the wide variety of your emotions, your moods, your likes and dislikes. In short, you. The full content of your mind is starting to release itself as you sit and relax and breathe. The breathing has relaxed you, and then with or without the breath as a support, uh, you're starting to learn that you can be with fear, you can be with anger, you can be with loneliness. Uh, maybe it's difficult now, but it can be learned, it has been learned. You're beginning to have the tools to do it. And you're getting experience with all the wide, all those uh, different creatures that visit you in Ajahn Chah's image at the forest pool. <clears throat> wanted, unwanted, wonderful, not so wonderful. <clears throat> okay. Then we go out into life with his action and people. Uh, and it isn't what that is helping you with. Even if you do the very same thing every day, let's say you have the same schedule every day, your inner responses, your emotional life, is going to change all the time. And now you've had practice now becoming more familiar, more at home with the wide variety. It's receiving your own experience. That capacity gets stronger and wider so that you're at home with yourself. That's a different kind of peace that comes from a concentrated mind. I've been dwelling on that a lot. I hope you understand. The second kind of peace is distinctive because you're not so afraid. You don't need to just separate from the things that frighten you to be peaceful because you're starting to learn how to pay attention to what frightens you or what is unwelcome. And that comes up in the midst of living. True, with people, more demanding, more challenging people you love, people you don't love, and so forth. But it's not unrelated. And as for the passive thing, you just sit there and watch it all go by, 
No, we're learning how to make contact with our personal experience as it is, whatever that experience is, whatever creatures visit the pool. And as we do that, the mind becomes clearer and you're less subject to impulsive, destructive reactions, unskillful action, and you're more able to act from a place that's clearer, kinder, wiser. So that sometimes you have to tell somebody, uh, I, I don't, sometimes you have to get, uh, use tough love. It's not saying that you're a doormat. Sometimes you have to be very firm. Sometimes you have to uh, quit something. You have to fire someone. You have to do whatever has to be done. But you do it in a way that's more sane. You're working something out in, with children or, or with your spouse or partner. And if it's reactive, you said that and you said you wouldn't and now look, you know, and then they come back and before you know it, it's just hopeless. It just goes on like that. An eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, and we're all blind and toothless. <laughs> uh, now, there's more of a possibility uh, for correct action to come out of that. You know, for you to be able to firmly, but not in such a reactive way, say the same message deliver the very same message, but it's not coming with the f- fierce quality of a, react- of a reaction. It's not compromised either. So please see uh, the practice as a journey into life with uh, the, the time set aside for quietude. Your own personal is not a luxury. You can do it at home. If it's valuable, protect it. Come up here and other retreat places. Uh, and then when you're off the cushion, don't see that as inferior or superior. It's just life in the next form. What's cooking for you? Any questions? Please. Thank you. Just keep doing it now. You don't need us. Please. Wants to watch the clock? Uh, On a retreat or home? Oh, do you mean simply when you do sitting, how long, how to time it? Time the sitting? Uh, okay. okay. Okay, I understand. Um, let's say when you're sitting, if, you're, if the sitting is uh, not a good sitting, bad, bad sitting, uh, then time becomes an eternity and you look at the watch and it can give you some relief. Oh, seven minutes to go. If you're having a great sitting, in other words, the bell ringer, mostly we're hated, but often we're loved. No, mostly we're loved because we're, we put an end to your suffering. God, you know. Okay. Uh, far more valuable than looking at your watch and getting a little bit of uh, getting some relief from that is looking at the mind that wants to look at the watch. And I would say that applies at, at home. See, it's always going to be self-knowing. Get to know yourself. And so you, you get to know yourself not in the abstract, but in the concrete situations of living and how you live in that situation. Wisdom is alive. They're not just words from a book. For wisdom to be effective, transformative, you have to live it. You have to be the wisdom. Okay, so let's say uh, some of you had clocks. And, you know, I made a few comments, and sometimes I have to say more than, more than once. So you're sitting, and suddenly you feel this strong urge, I've got to look at my watch, and you know you have that tendency. Okay, uh, the practice would be not to look at the watch, but to look at how desperate the mind gets. See what it does to your posture. See how you, it feels oh, you're on the edge of hysteria. Uh, and uh, watch that, and you'll see it starts to, it peaks, and then it starts to disintegrate, and then it falls away, and you realize, oh, it's just a, a condition, a mind state. Comes and goes, and then you do that a few times, and, and the problem, you don't have to do it anymore. Yeah. 
Please. Absolutely. Yes, that's often. It's not. It's not infrequent. Um, first of all, one thing I should say: uh, the reason we have the precepts to begin with, we need outer restraint, outer guidelines. Don't lie. Don't steal, etc. Because our tendency is to do those very things: steal, lie, uh, sleep with our, you know, uh, mess up. Lie, you know, we, we we do them. Otherwise, there'd be no need for the precepts. Okay, so sometimes restra- that means your tendency is to want to do something else, and sometimes you have to restrain yourself. It's not just all uh, surrender to I don't know what. Um, as the practice unfolds, now some people have less of that. If they've let's say had a, uh, been brought up, however they've gotten to be that way. Their ethical, the, the, the three legs of the practice are ethical refinement, sila, the, the precepts. It means uh, the, the bare minimum of civilized living together. Second one, concentration, samadhi. The third one, discernment, panya, wisdom. Okay. Those are the three legs of the whole thing. Okay. So now you're in uh, whatever it is, a child, a husband, a boss, whatever it is, and uh, suddenly you're tremendous uh, whatever comes up. And you're right. You can't just say, pardon me, I'm going to go to my little meditation cushion. Uh, You just stay frozen there. I'll be back in 10 minutes, and then we'll continue where we left off. Um, So sometimes you you have to do the best you can. For example, let's say you're a surgeon. This is not a hypothetical. And you're sleepy, and you've already had a whole bunch of patients, and you're irritable, and uh, the patient that you're doing surgery on is something un- un- you're repelled by them. You still have to do the surgery. You can't say, "Excuse me, while I do a half hour of metta." You know. Now, what you can do is what this is what I was getting at. While you're doing the surgery with practice, while you're with that person, or I assume it's a person, yeah, of course, okay. Um, you can stay in touch with it, but then it will it might require some restraint Restra- Restraint has a bad press in our culture it's sort of like uh you know just do the skies don't just uh, follow my heart, you know whatever you want to do. but restraint is not only bad, for example, if you're a loving parent and you're walking along the highway and your child wants to run out on the highway and they're very small, you restrain them not because you're a you know, you're di- dictatorial because you love them, okay? So sometimes you have to use restraint on yourself to prevent destructive behavior. Uh, and you, awareness can, you do the best you can in that situation. And awareness can help a little bit if, as you get into, first of all, you start to acknowledge that I am furious. And sometimes you can head off that, uh, almost, that almost, you know, sort of like lightning-like, where we strike out at another verbally or in other ways. And uh, that's a little bit of improvement because it can do a lot of damage. And then there's all this damage control that goes on and on. Um, now, you, you're, it's not perfect. You're suffering. After the event is over, you can sort of pull over to the side of the road and reflect on it. You know, because you may still feel it. And <clears throat> sometimes you can, in the reflection, you can see that your part in it, and you might see uh, where uh, there's something to be learned from it, and you have remorse. Or let's say you do finally, you do strike out, and it's over, it's too, too late, you didn't, you weren't, forget, Dharma's out the window. Uh, then after it's over, you, aside from apologizing, you can have remorse, review it, and see this was unskillful, and, it, and look at the result, learn from it. And there may be remorse, it's not a guilt trip. The remorse is good. I did something cruel, stupid. I hurt my child. I hurt my, my wife, whatever it is, lover, whatever it is. Um, and then learn from it and then move on. Drop it. And then you may go back to the person and either talk about it or not. But uh, we can't wait until we're perfect. But, but do you see what I'm getting at? Okay, good. 
or the surgeon. Um, you, have to, you have to do your best. And of course, um, you don't always feel like doing what you have to do. Look, I love to teach. I really do love this stuff, otherwise I wouldn't be doing it. But this retreat, um, a few days before the retreat, an old sports injury went out. It's, it's often connected with my lower back, excruciatingly painful. I'd roll out of bed here in the morning. It took me a couple of minutes because if I just get out naturally, yeah. and I had no voice. And my question is, at the beginning of the retreat, was, how do I survive? You know, do, will I get through this? Well, we're at the finish line. And um, there were times when uh, I wished that I didn't have to give the Dharma talk at night because I had barely any voice, etc., etc. Okay, but I did, and it was fine. You know, so I'm not, I'm not, it's not I'm particularly heroic. Any parent does that all day long. You all know that there's a lot of talk about renunciation. You're always putting a child ahead. You're a good parent. You're putting a child ahead of yourself very often. You're doing what's good for them, and it may not be what you want to do. Uh, and yet, there's a deeper love that makes it not, not damaging, not destructive. Yeah. Please. It's a different path. I need. I need to. It's that. It's a different path you've been on. Somewhat different than this path, spiritual path that you've been on. The, oh, oh, okay. Yes, yes. I understand. I understand. I do know. Yes. I understand. Uh, let me put it in a larger context for all of us. I will repeat the question. I'll, I'll repeat it. Let's say your training is to disengage from emotions in order so that you can do what's right for others. And if you do that enough times, uh, or even when you do it, you're, you're losing touch with yourself. Is that reasonable? Yeah. Um, look, uh, when, uh, Dharma practice, it, the, the revolution, it's, uh, the Buddhist teaching is revolutionary, always was, in any society. Um, it's a different way of relating to the same experience. Uh, typically, the dominant way in which all of us have been trained, brought up, is uh, some blend of restraint and indulgence. But let's say, your nature and what might have been encouraged different cultures or some cultures are very restrained. If you're British, you know, like the World War II films where, you know, bombs dropping all, you know, everyone's dying all around the British officer with the swagger stick, clothes nightly pressed. Oh, good show, no problem, you know, like, uh, you know, sort of stiff upper lip kind of thing. In the meantime, you might be, okay. If you're a Russian Jew, you know, like, or Italian or Hispanic, you know, <laughs> Okay. Uh, okay. So Dharma is neither denial, repression, avoidance, etc., or drowning, getting lost, swept away, just acting out everything. It's somewhere right in the middle. Uh, at least that's the skill that we've been cultivating here, whether you know it or not, the whole week, which is we're not repressing and we're also not acting on it. We're allowing it to be there whatever that is, uh, to give us the, uh, the, let it flower. And we're learning how to be with it. Uh, so it's neither of the extremes. Your extreme and others have had a different one. They're both uh, aberrations, aber, ab, you know, the distortions uh, in a way. And this one is just letting it flower. It's a human tendency. If you have that feeling, that's what's there. Let it flower, let it tell its story, and we're watching it, and, and we're opening to it. It is intimate. You're experiencing it, receiving it. 
and something good happens from that. Now, that training is over, right? And so here you are. And what do you do if your tendency has been that and the person on the next cushion is the other one? We all start from where we are. And the practice is just to begin there. And so no doubt some of that will start to come up with you. And the practice will be beneficial for you as you start. It might be hard for you as emotions come up that you've been trained out of, out of knowing. And then you have to learn how to let it go. You may have resentment towards your trainers. You know, then you have to work with that, etc. So we all have some kind of, it's skewed in one way or another by each culture, by each family. And then we have our own temperament we brought to this life. Uh, so your practice, your path is unique. And it's different than everyone else's in this room, and so is mine. But what's the same is the attention and the willingness to learn from that awareness. Yeah. Yeah. Please. I'd rather know a specific question. I don't, it makes me feel like I'm an encyclopedia. People often say, say something about anger, say something about fear. I feel like, go into the internet, you know, n- nothing, per, you know, like fear, you know, like Buddhism on fear. What? Good. Yes. Yes, that's the culture you live in. We live in, yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I understand. Okay. No, it's a very important point you're bringing up. Um, Dharma is always countercultural, if I'm going to use that phrase. I don't want to make an ideology out of it, but uh, it's always countercultural, uh, even in India at the time, uh, because it isn't the way things are. But it, your, your, your point is very, very important for the following reason. If it's countercultural, and then as you start med- if you really are drawn to this, and you start doing it, doing it, doing it, is it going to make you a bigger misfit than you were to begin with? (laughs) Could be. Okay, um, but that's where wisdom comes in. First of all, this is something that, those of you who are new, you need to know this. I think the old-timers already know this. If you're a meditator, understand that you will always be living in a world of non-meditators. I don't know, does that come through yet? Non-meditators, meat-eaters, all those things you don't... (laughs) The sooner you come to grips with that and understand that you're not in control, this is the way it is. Without, whether it's capitalism or socialism or uh, whatever other... uh, It's some culture that over time gets stylized and patterned and so forth, and we've all been through that. Liberation is from the conditioning, but you can dress like everyone. Uh, You can not get in trouble with the police. Uh, You can, uh, in one sense, uh, become a fine person, not a misfit, and be free inside. The real freedom is not rebelling, having done that. Uh, You know, maybe many of you have too. That's the beginnings of it. You know, you react. You, this is you go from the North Pole to the South Pole, and you go back from the South Pole to the North Pole. Uh, it's not. It's pseudo freedom. The real freedom is inside. Now, if as you become that way, and you relate to people who are capitalists and who eat meat and whatever else you don't like, um, as you develop more and more contact with something deeper inside than any of these ideologies or how, even how people are behaving more and more you live from that. And 
uh, change your society, go to a, a better one. If you can find it, please go. I, you know, they all, they'll all have some problem, has been my conclusion. And so the problem turns out, the freedom finally turns out to be in us. Uh, my main teacher, first teacher, and very, very influential was Krishnamurti, who was uh, grown up in India, but brought up by British aristocracy for many years. And when he taught, he had an, a beautifully tailored Savile Row suit, uh, polished shoes, uh, a, a lovely tie, well-groomed, nice posture. Uh, and uh, there are people who come up and says, how could he be spiritual? You know? And uh, then there was uh, the, uh, our Bindos, uh, there was a woman he was with, the mother she was called, and she had mascara and dressed beautifully. She was a French countess, I think, and had uh, lovely dresses and high heels. Uh, how could she be holy? It's ridiculous. Holiness has nothing to do with that, or uh, kindness, or compassion, or freedom. Uh, so, uh, but it's a, it's, a, it's a challenging world that we all live in, and it is what you say. And as you get freer, you become more skillful in living in it. Maybe uh, it's not that you have to be everywhere. You can more and more be with people as much as you can who are congenial. But everyone's doing that. Golfers hang out with other golfers, right? But Ma- Ma- Michael told me that. Oh. <laughs> okay, I think enough. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.